I've been promising that if you guys send me an email or leave a comment on iTunes that I would try to read some of those on the air. And I hadn't done that in a while, so I figured I would share this. This is a, from a guy named Scott in Flagstaff, Arizona. He says, Hi, Otis. I literally stumbled upon Thanks for Giving a Damn while looking for something else on my TuneIn radio app. It was a very happy coincidence. I wanted to thank you for putting it out there and tell you how much I've enjoyed every episode. I particularly like the fact that you put the artist front and center and the homey feel of it all. Thanks for bringing folks like Delbert McClinton and Todd Snyder into my living room. Well, actually, I live in a yurt, so one and only room. Best wishes and thank you for making life richer for us all. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And if uh, you guys keep sending those in, I will try to read them on the air when I get a chance. Now I'm going to have to go try to figure out what the hell a yurt is. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room on a very cold day in East Nashville. We had the first snow of the year last night. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Paul Kelly. Paul is a singer and a songwriter who's originally from Adelaide in Southern Australia. You can find out everything you need to know about Paul at paulkelly.com. I stumbled across this quote about Paul from David Fricke in Rolling Stone magazine. He says, Paul Kelly is one of the finest songwriters I've ever heard, Australian or otherwise. And if you know who David Frick is, you know that that is a huge quote. I first learned about Paul a few years ago when Amy turned me on to his music. We heard he was going to be in Nashville, so we were getting pretty excited about the possibility of maybe having him on the show. And uh, we invited him, and he came over to the living room, and man, we're just really happy to get to sit down and talk with him. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Paul Kelly. Yeah, I grew up in Adelaide in, it's a city of about one million. It sort of seems roughly the size. Of, maybe it's bigger than Nashville, I think, but I don't think there's 1,352 guitar pickers in um, <laughs> Adelaide. <laughs> there's a lot more than that now in Nashville, I guess, because when did uh, John Sebastian write that song? 40 years ago. Nashville um, Cats. Was it? Yeah, what a song. <laughs> I grew up, like I said, a family of, we were a family of eight growing up, and uh, mum was very musical, her parents both sang opera. Uh, so she played piano and sang. Dad didn't play music, but he loved it. And we all had piano lessons as children. It was, it was compulsory. It wasn't, you know, this is the 60s. Children didn't have choices then. We just told what to do. <laughs> um, so we all went through piano lessons. And, um, and then my, my sister was going out with this, this fellow who played trumpet. I was quite taken with him. And uh, I asked my parents if I could switch to trumpet in high school because the school was just starting to bring in, bring in this brass program. And um, 
I got the sort of sit down talking to from my parents that you can't just switch and then change your mind. If you're going to switch, you've got to stick with it. And I did, and I played trumpet all through high school. Um, and he had brought, my sister's boyfriend had, you know, brought around some Dixieland jazz records. Um, Louis Armstrong and Kenny Ball, uh, English trumpeter, Al Hurt. Um, and those records just exploded my brain. I never heard sort of, I never heard Dixieland jazz. I'd never heard music that was, sounded so chaotic, but it had, it had obviously a form and an order, but um, everyone, everybody seemed to be playing so freely and um, away from each other, but with each other at the same time. So that was the first music I fell pretty hard for. And, um, and later on, in, because of being interested in the trumpet, of course, um, Herb Alpert, Herb Alpert, you know, The Lonely Bull. I used to, you know, I learnt The Lonely Bull and um, lo- loved those records. Was Louis Armstrong uh, very popular in Australia? Yeah, sometimes I can't gauge what's very popular, you know, because you, you often you, you sort of follow what you like and you think that more people like it than that really do. Yeah, I think we all, that all happens to all of us where we sort of think, What's happening in our circle is the main thing. Um, you know, I know he toured, he, he toured out there, so um, pretty popular. I mean, I, I don't know if I heard him really much on the radio or anything, but, you know, people who follow jazz would know him. But, I mean, he, yeah, he, he transcended that as well. So he was, he was I, I think he was probably, probably pretty well known. I, I wasn't re- really aware of it, but I, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, but in my late teens, not long after I first started, playing guitar, I heard the Stanley Brothers for the first time and that was another sort of blow-the-top-of-your-head-away moment. Again, to me that sounded like music from another planet, this sort of weird high high singing and um, I sort of started, you know, trying to follow, you know, follow the trails around the Stanley Brothers. There's folk clubs in, in Adelaide so and there was, you know, you could go to people's, you know, find someone who had a record and go over there to their place with your cassette and tape it, you know, um, uh, and, you know, blues. I sort of, I also had a, found this guy who had a really great blues collection, you know, Blind Willie McTell and Robert Johnson and Sonny Moore Williamson and uh, I went over to his place and taped those records. And I still have those, some of those tapes to this day. Um, as you know, I'm still... I still play cassettes. I'm one of the last of the cassette men. I, uh, it's only just a few years ago that I, I stopped recording song ideas onto cassettes and sang them into a, into a computer. But I still have a cassette, cassette player in my car, so that's, that's where the old um, cassettes get a run. I think almost everything that I've ever been turned on to that I really love was because a friend made me a cassette copy and gave it to me. Yeah, and the mixed cassette, yeah. Used to make you know mix, quite a few mixed cassettes. I still got still got them, and they're they're great to have because you know they're, they're a little snapshot of the time in your life and what what you liked, and, and also um, mixtapes that people gave you. So I really you know uh, always hang on to them. The, these days, um, I guess the gaps between the really good good gigs and the really bad gigs um, are not so great, but you know, going way back, uh, there was a lot more disparity. I can remember 
uh, some of the early shows we did and some of the disasters we had. Um, I remember one in 1985, pretty much just, well, 86, I would say, 86, when I just got a, a pretty new band together and um, the bass player's mate uh, had a PA. And we were, this is a rock band, you know, bass, drums, keyboards, guitar, uh, guitars, five of us. And um, we were booked to play at this place called Mitigong RSL. Uh, RSL stands for Return Servicemen's Leagues Club. This is the, they have these clubs in Australia. They're like um, big pub gigs. Um, uh, you know, they also have pokey machines and other things in them as well, restaurants. and They usually have a, a room, you know, for entertainment. Mitigong's sort of west of, west of Sydney, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. We drove out there for the sound check, got there and uh, walked into the room. I suppose when the sound check was about to start and, that, and we could see that the PA was still all in, all in pieces. Spaghetti, a spaghetti of leads all over the floor. The, um, uh, the, the you know the mixer who who owned the PA was was a guy with dreads. In fact, they called him Dread. He was looking a long way off from getting this uh, sound system together. Uh, so we sort of went away for a while and came back. It still wasn't ready, and uh, uh, he kept um, trying to get this PA working. Eventually, you know we. We got to the time we were supposed to play. We hadn't had a sound check. Uh, the PA still wasn't ready. Also in those days, in these clubs, there would always be um, a DJ, you know. A, um, in fact, often the DJ was the main act and the band was sort of squeezed in between. This is the 80s. Um, and the DJ was uh, playing his tunes really loud and starting to make snide remarks about the band being late. Eventually we, sort of, we got on stage and... Um, started to play it sounded horrible there was there was feedback there were you know there was crackles um the the monitors sounded like harsh and muddy at the same time how was that possible but it was um the place could fit about 600 people there's about 50 there they were all way back at the back of the room uh, up at the bar we were we were playing. There was every now and then there was a really loud spike of feedback. Um, we were just all dying up there. I think every one of us wanted to kill ourselves. Um, eventually, we saw this uh, young woman detach herself from the from the group of drinkers at the bar and walk all the way up to the stage in front of us. And she stood in front of our guitar player and was beckoning him, wanting to talk to him. This is in the, in the middle of the song and. We sort of we, we finished the song and and I was thinking to myself, oh, at least somebody likes it, you know. Uh, and uh, we finished the song and Steve, the guitar player, bent down to hear what she had to say and, and she said, um, "I'm leaving now, but uh, my my friends and I are leaving now. But we just I just want to tell you before we left, I think you're the worst band I've ever heard." <laughs> <laughs> that was Minigong RSL, 1986. Oh, it's it's been mostly better than that since then <laughs> i can't remember what we did after the after the gig i think we, we probably probably just drank heavily uh I, I first met i first saw casey chambers playing in a in a, a tent at the byron bay blues festival byron bay is this beach town very popular holiday spot on the northern new south wales coast it's also hosted this festival now for i'd say 15 20 years and 
I don't know, maybe she hadn't even made her first record then, or maybe she'd just made an EP or something. But she was, uh, she was singing, she was wearing a, a, a sort of long black lacy dress. She had like a nose ring and she sang uh, up on Cripple Creek. Um, and the audience seemed to be mostly bearded bikers. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, wow, oh, this is something. Um, and then I had, to, I, I had to do my own gig, so I don't think I could even see the end of her set. I had to go and get ready. That was, so that, that was the first time I saw her, and uh, uh, she made a big impression. And then uh, we went out and toured together. We, I invited her to do a tour with, with me. I was doing uh, – I'd made a record. This, so this is 99. I made a record called Smoke, which was a bluegrass record. Um, and it was actually uh, inspired by um, Tim O'Brien's Red on Blonde, where he'd done bluegrass versions of Dylan songs. And I thought to myself, oh, I, I could do something similar with my own songs. And most of my songs have been recorded with a rock band, but a lot of them come out, you know, sort of out of similar roots to, to a lot of Dylan's songs, come out of folk, folk, you know, folk, and, folk and country. And I had songs that I thought would suit a bluegrass treatment. So I wrote um, um, some, some new songs and, and uh, uh, chose some old ones and did this record, which, you know, half and half, old and new, in a bluegrass style with a bluegrass band. And that was the band I took uh, out on tour in 1999 after the record came out and we asked Casey to do the tour. Um, so that's when we first got to know her and... and and meet her and play with her. And in the course of that tour, we had a day off and we decided to go into the studio. In, this is in Perth and record a couple of songs, one of hers and one of mine. Um, and the one of hers we did was uh, I Still Pray, which we did as a duet. Um, and that ended up uh, on her next record and did pretty well. And then she had a, she had a record called The the Captain, which did, you know, that was her first big record in Australia. And she was off and running. Yeah, so we, we've crossed paths a lot over the years. So, um, yeah, she lives a long way. I mean, she lives up in the northern, northern, northern beaches north of Sydney, so um, a bit far away. But, um, you know, we still catch up from time to time. And just recently her dad's been out here in Nashville, so had a bit of a play with him while he was here, Bill Chambers. I did my first uh, American tour with Crowded House, so that was that was uh, still one of those sort of glowing golden memories. Um, I probably thought, oh, touring the states is easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were they were um, they were uh, just um, starting to break with "Don't Dream It's Over." So they're playing theaters about fifteen hundred to two thousand, but they, and they were all you know. And the, and the song was sort of climbing the chart. So really exciting time for them. And w we were we were travelling with them and we'd, we'd um, on A&M Records and we had the budget for, a, you know, to be on a tour bus, the first time on, on a, uh, doing touring American style and being on the bus. And, and we were playing to, you know, full houses every night and going over well and, you know, doing our 30, 30 to 40 minute set. And... and uh, Everything was just sort of peachy. And we, we knew those guys. I'd known Neil from Melbourne. Uh, Neil and Tim Finn had moved over from New Zealand to Melbourne, so I knew them from around the place. So 
Neil and I come from, you know, similar sort of, uh, you know, that big, big clans, sort of uh, big Irish clans, um, or, uh, you know, his case Irish New Zealand, but in my case Irish Australian. And, um, similar family backgrounds, you know, Catholic, lots of get-together, singing, cooking, gossiping, teasing, that, that kind of thing. So um, we don't see each other that often, but, you know, when we do, it's always less, we sort of just pick up the threads. So after that tour in 87, we, we, um, we would um, see each other from time to time and do be on the same bill occasionally. And then... Um, about uh, three or four years ago, our, our booking agent in Australia um, said, you, you guys should do a tour together. And, um, you know, we, it sort of, I had things on and Neil had things on. And, but um, Brett, uh, Brett Murray here, our agent, kept sort of just every now and then we'd just keep sort of saying, what about doing it just little, you know, what about next year? Or, and he just kept saying, what about next year? <laughs> Eventually, um, we sort of had the, you know, both had windows open at the same time and we decided to uh, put this tour together. And we wanted to take the, uh, the whole, that idea of the family band. I mean, because Neil, Neil does, uh, Neil has often plays with his wife and his, he has two sons, Liam and Elroy. Liam plays guitar. Liam's got his own band, Betcha Duper. Um, Elroy plays drums. He's the younger one. And I played a lot with my nephew, Dan. So straight away we thought, well, let's make it, you know, we come from this big sort of, uh, you know, singing background where the family gets together and on various occasions and sings a song or everyone, you know, an uncle does an item and somebody reads a poem and someone tells a joke and someone sings a song. Let's try and make a tour with that kind of feeling, um, like a family sing-along. So he asked Elroy to play drums. Elroy also sings. Um, Dan played, my nephew Dan Kelly played guitar and he also sings. He makes his own records. And we found a bass player, Zoe Houtman, who wasn't related to anyone in the band, but, but so, um, she walked into rehearsal on the first day with uh, you know, every song. We, had a, we, we, put a list, we put a list together of 35 songs, of 35 to 40 songs of, mine and Neil's and she walked in the first day and she had all those songs in her head and could play them. Meanwhile, the rest of us are all scrabbling around on the floor with <laughs> pieces of paper and charts and words. And <laughs> so uh, she was family from the start. She also had a, had a great singing voice. So um, we also decided that, that we would, you know, tr really try and knit the show together, that we would be singing on each other's songs, not just, you know, sharing verses, giving our songs over to the others to, to the other to sing. Um, and we also gave each other um, the pick of doing the, the other's song. So you know, Neil had a choice to do any song of mine he wanted completely, just that was his and, and vice versa. So uh, it was really one of the most enjoyable tours I I've done. You know, I mean, again, sort of, I'd, know, I'd known Neil for a long time, to go into this kind of show, there was a certain anxiety about it. You never quite know if it's, if it's going to work. But um, we sort of knew from the first day of rehearsal that it was going to work really well. So the, the tour rolled, rolled around three weeks in Australia and 
well, it was a big success. Do you remember the first time you came to Nashville? Uh, it was a long time ago, and uh, I had a manager at the time. We, we had a contact for Steve Earle, and we, we met up with him. I saw, I saw Steve, Steve play, uh, and uh, we, met up, we met up with him. He was really gracious and friendly. Um, this must have been late 80s. You know, I went and visited the old, the old, the Ryman Auditorium, and uh, and then we actually went out to a show at the Grand Old Opry, the uh, uh, Opry, Opry Ballroom. Um, we did a show with Greg Ormond, and then it was about twenty years, twenty years since uh, I didn't come back again till early this year. So it was just a long, long gap. Have you been riding with people while you've been here? Yes, I have. Um, I have a. Uh, my publishing company is Sony ATV, and they have an office in Australia, and they also have one here. So um, the folks there have put me together with a few few people. So we're, I've been having a go. That's a, I, d- I have done a lot, quite a lot of co-writing, but it's mainly with people I know. Um, I co-write to a certain, quite, you know, more and more with my bands. You know, out of just out of jamming at rehearsals, and co-write with my nephew Dan Kelly, who I play with quite a lot. And I've co-written with quite a few women in Australia um, who, who, who at various times have approached me to write songs for them and we get together and try and work out a song. But um, nearly in all the cases, uh, there have been people that I know. I've ne- to, uh, so this past week has been this uh, interesting experience of walking into a room cold with a stranger and, and uh, trying to write a song. So I mean, you know, it's it's in, it's in, yeah, it's in, it's in, I mean, it's just an interesting. It's all grist to the mill, I think. It's an interesting experience. I don't know. I never. It's hard to tell whether a song's any good straight away. Anyway, so, um, but I've written, um, or close to completed four songs this week, which is rocketing along for me. I never write that fast, <laughs> but um, uh, we'll see. We'll see whether they stay or not. Yeah, that, those arbitrary pairings can can um, lead anywhere. And even if, because um, I've, I've done a, I once did a similar thing in um, Australia, you know, I went to this songwriting, that, that this uh, my, my old publishers ran these songwriting camps for a week where people would get together. Um, and uh, again, I wrote with some people there, but I, I had, I didn't know them, but I hadn't really worked with them before, but. Even sometimes when you, do, you you spend that, you know, you've been put together in a situation where the expectation is to write a song. I think the best way to approach it is that, well, you're not, you're not necessarily, it doesn't matter if you don't write a song. I mean, songwriting is, songwriting is a form of play. Well, to me it is anyway. And um, play, best play always has something aimless about it. And songs often come from wandering down an aimless path and, and then something comes at you sideways. Then you try and hunt that down. And then you might get a you might get a song. I guess I've never been the brill brill building national songwriter type where you you go to work each day and have a song at the end of it. Um, I think you do have to go to you know to write songs and successfully you do have to turn up. You have to sort of turn up, whether it's at your own guitar or at your own piano in your own room in your own house, or whether you go to an, an office in Music Row. You've got to turn up. Um, yeah, 
and you may not write a song five days. It's like fishing, you know, you, you might go out fishing for five days, not get a bite, and the sixth day you get the bite and you get a big one, but you needed to be out there for five days. I mean, I think most of songwriting is nothing's happening for me. You know what they say about war. It's a, that's a mostly boredom punctuated by moments of terror. Well, songwriting sort of mostly, for me, is mostly boredom punctuated by occasional surprise. <laughs> um, so, you know, you put together, you get together with a stranger in a room and that may or may not happen. Um, I think what does happen is that there's an expectation that something's got to be finished or, or written or to a certain extent completed. So you can um, get these cobbled together results. But even, even if you get together with someone else and you write, have a go at writing, it doesn't quite work. It will, it can just have this other sort of um, side effect where it just shifts something inside you and then you might go home and from that and then bang, you write, you write a song. It's just, it sort of just gets the wheels turning and that's, that's really what you've got to do with songwriting is just get the wheels turning and... Um, I appreciate you coming over here and sitting down with me in my living room and uh, it's great to have you on. I appreciate you having me. Thanks very much. I hope you have fun in Nashville and get to come back and visit us a little more often. Yeah, I think I will be coming back a little bit oftener now. Beautiful. All right, safe travels. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Paul for coming over to my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Paul at paulkelly.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com, and I might even read it on the air. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.